Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, My guest today is Breno Fragomeni. He's an assistant professor of genetics at University of Connecticut, UConn, and we're going to talk about uh, use of genetic and genomic tools to mitigate environmental impact in livestock. So, Brandon, thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to participate in your project. Yeah, tell me about your research. Uh, what specific livestock are you working on and what's it about? So, I work with several different species. Right now, I'm focusing more in dairy cows and in pigs as well, especially on the environmental impacts in in production. But I also work with other species. I work with dogs. I work with beef cattle. Pretty much anything that can provide data, we we can work with. But the main thing in in my research is how to identify animals and select them, animals that are are tolerant to higher temperatures over the summer, especially. So our goal, for example, if you think about pigs, they lose on average 20 pounds of meat in the the hot months. So the animals are slaughtered lighter than in the rest of the year. And that's because they're feeling hot and they can't eat because when they eat, they generate more heat. So they just stay without eating for longer, right? And that thing varies. Not all of the animals lose 20 pounds. That's just the average. So what I try to do is to identify what is the genetics underlying those animals that did not lose weight or, or at least they lost less weight. Well, what? Okay. So what, what kind of animals and are these pigs mostly or cows or what? So for pigs, of course, I'll do the, the, the weight gain. So I try to identify pigs that are not going to lose so much weight. And for cows, uh, we also we also do research in cows, and for cows we try to identify cows that that can be milked, can 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 produce more milk during hot days. Okay, so, so essentially in in summer conditions, 
Yeah, um, so both pigs and cows lose quite a bit of weight. And what uh, what else happens to them? Do they are there any countervailing measures where they produce more milk or they do other things in excess, but things certain things wane when their weight goes down? So for the cows, what happens is that for pretty much every degree, so doing a very rough estimate here, in our farm here at, at Yukon, for every degree above 70 degrees Fahrenheit, we lose about eight pounds of milk in our farm. And it's not linear. So some, some very hot days, we may lose as much as 500 pounds here of milk in the end of the day on, on all of the 80 cows that we have. What about what conditions are they in to sleep in at night? Is it inside or outside? And can you, um, if you cool them down at night, will that help? So you can only cool them so much because in the end of the day, we still have to produce cheap food, right? So we can have sprinklers and sprinklers also only help so much because it's humid outside. The sprinklers are not going to help too much. So the animals are usually indoors, dairy cows. In some situations, dairy cows are outside, but... Uh, when they are indoors and it's very humid and hot, the sprinklers, they don't help that much. But yeah, there are some alternatives that we can do, but they don't seem to fix all of the problems, especially the, the cheaper ones, because we have to produce cheap food in the end of the day. So we cannot just install our conditioning in the farms because that's going to make the milk or the meat too expensive for people to afford, right? Well, what about a like a misting system? You know, maybe that only comes on at night for an hour or... During the day, it comes on periodically and that helps cool them. I mean, is it, like, have you analyzed, have you microanalyzed this to where if you're able to cool the cows or, you know, the cows, uh, let's say an hour before milking, does that help or they have to be cooled continuously for it to improve? Like, what have you observed? So what we, we, we studied on that is, so in, in certain places that works really well. For example, when we compared Texas and North Carolina, and that was for pigs, in Texas, we didn't see any heat stress because of those those uh, mist systems. They work really well in Texas because it's a it's a drier heat, right? So so they really decrease the temperature, the feeling at least from from the animals. However, in North Carolina, because it's a very uh, uh, humid heat, they were not helping at all. So we found even though the actual temperatures were a little bit lower in North Carolina, the animals were much more heat stressed than when compared to Texas. But yeah, there are some alternatives okay. that, that if you space the animals more and you put less animals per, per space, then it can dissipate heat a little bit more. But that also increases production costs quite a lot. because we, What about we, like fans? You know, even just a fan blowing, is it, uh, can you have too much or is that, does that do anything to uh, help wick, wick moisture away from the cow's bodies and make it cooler for them? Yeah, it helps up to a point. So when temperatures are way too hot, then the, those systems, they don't do, they don't do much anymore. It's better than not having them. So we have to, to, to work on both the, the, the environmental uh, tools, but we can also Choose animals that are prepared for those temperature fluctuations or those just higher temperatures over the summer. You're looking for the animals that have genes that make them more tolerant to heat. Yes. Like what? They, what? What means tolerance? Is it that they're still producing? Yes. You know, more milk than others, or is it that the cows show signs that they're visibly uncomfortable? Or like, what does it mean by tolerance? So, in in that case, we were talking about animals that can still produce under heat stress situations. 
So it's very hard to, so the main problem with heat stress is that it's very hard to measure, right? And you're talking about big farms, like big companies with thousands and thousands of animals. So if you want to measure if the animal is heat stressed by blood samples, or at least like evaluation of the animal, that becomes extremely expensive. So we usually measure if production decreases, we consider that the animal is heat stressed. And we try to identify the genes associated or actually animals with genetics associated with a a smaller loss or no loss at all of, of production over those hot periods. And do you see that currently? Do you see like a wide distribution in the, uh, the amount of milk production of cows under heat conditions? So our research with the heat stress in cows, we are still not on the genetics part. So we are now evaluating how much milk the animals are losing just because of heat stress. And in cows, it's more complicated because if it's hot today, the, the, the impact is going to be tomorrow and maybe the day after tomorrow. So it fluctuates much faster than, let's say, weight gain in pigs, right? I think you'll find, um, you know, like, if you, I don't know how often cows are milked. Like, how, how often are these heifers milked in a week? They're usually milked, so it depends a lot on the farm, but most of them will be two to three times a day. Oh, wow. Every Seven days a week, two to three times a day? Yep. Yeah, I just wonder if there's like a timing hack you can do. You know, if you cool them down uh, at night or in the morning before they milk or between milkings or whatever, I don't know. I just wonder if, uh, since they must replenish it so quickly, if you're doing it two or three times a day, you might have like multiple windows in which you can boost milk production with, uh, you know, changing conditions. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, so what do we learn in another study? So we, we, we compared the vaginal temperature of cows. So we measure it every five minutes from, I think we had like 105 cows in that study. And we saw that the, the most problematic animals, so all of the animals, they got hot during the day, right? Even if they're indoors. And the problematic animals were not able to cool down overnight. So in the morning, the animals with a higher temperature were producing less milk. And that wasn't a farm in, in Missouri, if I remember it right. What are your what I know that it gets pasteurized, but what about bacterial content? Have you looked at that, you know, for warmer heifers that are producing milk? Maybe not only they produce less, but maybe the bacteria composition or content is higher or different. Yeah, that, that's a, so we still don't have data on that. We are actually collecting it right now. So hopefully next week we're going to have a, a wave of higher temperatures so we can take some samples. But mastitis, which is the inflammation of the, the mammary gland, happens much more often during the hot months. So that could be because, I mean, that, and that would affect the, the, the composition of the milk, but that could be because the animal is stressed, the defenses are much lower. So that is something that, that 
people are investigating. I am not sure if it uh, uh, changes the fat and protein content of the milk. I never saw anything about it, but uh, uh, the quality of the milk tends to be worse and mastitis tend to be higher on those months. So there's probably a link between heat stress and the, the bacterial composition of the milk. Hopefully we'll be able to answer mm. you next month when we analyze the data that we're collecting. So your, your theory is that uh, there's going to be some genetic aberrations that uh, allow certain cows to be able to tolerate heat more and keep up their milk production? Like, have you observed this? So you know, did- if uh, cows are exposed to heat, are there some that just still continue to produce a lot more milk? What usually happens, especially when you're talking about, so there is an inverse proportion of higher production and heat tolerance. So animals that produce a lot of milk, they tend to be a little bit more sensitive to heat stress. So we're trying to find an animal that will not keep producing a lot of milk, but it's not going to be so affected by the, the higher temperatures. We identified some pigs on that, that they, they were still gaining weight over the year, but the summer was not impacting them so much. And those are the animals that we look. We know that on, on, on a very hot day, the cow is going to be stressed. But there will be a difference between getting sick and not producing a lot of milk for a couple of days or just getting a little bit less milk after a heat wave. Well, I know cows are specifically bred to maximize their milk production. So... Uh, you know, I'm sure there's been a lot of work already done genetically. Are you able to observe a cow that hasn't been optimized for milk production versus one that has? Because you'll probably see a lot of differences there, I would think, epigenetically. You know? Oh, yeah. So they're basically different animals. So if you compare like a beef cow and a dairy cow, they, they sometimes don't even look alike. So we are focusing our research on the higher producing milking cows. And that is because we got to a point that, at least in my opinion, we don't need to get more milk out of those cows. So now what we have to work to improve those cows is if we can keep that milk production and increase the quality of the milk or the quality of life of that animal by breeding healthier animals and animals that are not going to suffer, for example, with heat stress. That's what I'm focusing now. But there are Actually, when we breed cows, so we have more than 30 traits that are evaluated. So that goes from milk production, milk quality, reproduction, health, uh, the conformation of the animal. So we select animals based on a lot of information. And what my research is doing is bringing one more thing to make this process even more complicated. But that is going to, to help the animals and help the farmers to at least lose less money over the summer months. Yeah, but do you think there's going to be a trade-off? I mean, these cows have been so optimized for milk production. I guess you just work with what's there. But um, I wonder if it's going to be hard because if you do anything to make them more resistant to heat, if that's going to be a a straight trade-off with milk production. Hopefully not. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, so it's very likely that the best animal for milk production is not going to be the best animal for heat tolerance and vice versa. So our idea is to find an animal that is somewhere in between. So it's still very good for milk production and it's not going to be affected that much during the, during the hot months. But yeah, you were right. There is a trade-off and, and in dairy cows right now, I have no idea how much would that be. In pigs, we were able to find very good animals that were heat tolerant. 
So, well, so what what changes in pigs? I mean, you're not, you know, I know it's funny you're not milking them, but uh, what what changes about them? They just lose significant amount of weight, so when they're slaughtered, uh, you get less meat. Yeah, so pigs are especially sensitive to heat stress because they don't sweat, and they don't have pretty much any way to fight the heat. So, a, a, but a pig, though, I mean, it's, it's a totally different, well, literally different animal. Can you experiment there and cool them at periodic times and see if that slows the weight loss? Or, like, how long of a heat exposure is enough to significantly reduce their weight? 30 days. So, the best way to predict if the pig's going to be heat stressed that we, we, we found is over a period of 30 days, how many days we have temperatures above 72 degrees? So with that information, we are able to pretty much predict how much meat we would lose. So we took like the average temperature, the 30 days before the slaughter, and we could tell how much weight those animals are going to lose. And we could cool down those animals, but we're talking about... Is the, is the pig still... I know you don't want to slaughter them too early, and they're probably slaughtered the first moment they can be. But what does the pig's weight look like in the 30 days before they're even ready to be slaughtered? Is it still increasing normally? It just increases less with heat? Or yes. has their weight peaked earlier? No, it increases less. So sometimes people keep animals a little bit longer in the summer because they're not in the optimal weight yet. So just the, uh, the trajectory gets tamped down when they're exposed to heat. They, they still gain weight, just slower and longer. Exactly. So they don't get to the point of losing weight. At least I never saw that. But yeah, if, if there is like an extreme scenario of heat stress, so for example, no fans and nothing in the farm, then yes, then those animals might lose weight. But uh, as you mentioned, we have those tools to mitigate the heat stress. And animals, they, they, they can still gain weight, but not as much. But it's hard to have like a very good tool to, to cool down the farm because we're talking about farms with thousands and thousands of pigs. So cooling down like a huge farm gets extremely expensive and then people won't be able to afford a meat if we had those systems. So the genetics, it's much cheaper, even though we, we, we just basically have to pay for data collection and somebody to analyze the data. So it's much cheaper than, for example, installing air conditioning on, I don't know how many farms the companies will have, but they slaughter, like a slaughterhouse uh, 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 in the U.S. will be like at least 10,000 animals a day. So you can imagine the size of those facilities. Yeah, that's crazy. Has anyone looked at the uh, nutritional content of the meat of heat-stressed versus non-heat-stressed pigs? Or, you know, I know there's... So... I tried to look at the composition of the meat, so the profiles, and, and a colleague of mine did the same thing, and, and they didn't find much. Oh, so heat-stressed pigs, the meat is similar. There's very little difference between heat-stressed and non-heat-stressed. There's just more of it in the non-heat-stressed. Yeah, so we tried to evaluate if there was more fat, and, and with the data we had, we couldn't, but it is possible that this link exists. We just don't have the, the quality on the data to collect. Have you ever, you know, talked to people and done a tasting, you know, where they taste the, you know, bacon or, you know, ham or whatever it is from uh, two populations, one that's been heat stressed, one not to see if there's a difference there. Yeah. That would be interesting. It'd be delicious to find out. Yeah, no, that, that would be interesting. Uh, usually the type of data that we work with, with this type of study 
we get whatever data the company collects and the farms collect, and we just analyze that. But those are experiments that are, are very interesting. We actually thought about putting animals in a heat chamber to evaluate how the details of those animals would be because when we have data on like half million animals, we just have like body weight, date of birth. We just have like some, some very specific life events and some phenotypes. We don't, we don't have a lot of details. So that may be the reason why we couldn't find a link between meat quality and heat stress. Okay, what genes do you think will be involved in uh, allowing animals to be more heat tolerant? Okay, so that, that's a great question. And that actually answers one of the questions in the email that is said about the misconceptions in the field. So what happens for most of the traits we work with, we're not looking for a gene or a group of a small group of genes. We're actually talking about the whole genome of the animal. So the way it works is that we have several genes. And I, when I say several, it's like more than a thousand genes with very small effect each. And together they contributed to those, to those phenotypes that we're talking about. And that makes our life much harder because we're not just tracking a single gene, but we're tracking a combination of effects of alleles. And that changes everything. If you think about each one of our cells in our body, they have the same, the same DNA, right? But they look completely different because they express the, the, the genes in different forms. So maybe in one type of cell, one gene is very important. And in the other type of cell, another gene is very important. And when you kind of average that across the whole body, for, for things that are complex, like body weight or milk production, then what we have in the end of the day is a huge number of genes with very small effect. So we, we have to select the animal based on the combination of the whole genome instead of studying the function of specific genes, if that makes sense. Why, um, why are you looking at it on a whole genome basis? Because is it likely that you're going to miss the associations if you look only at certain genes, or what's the reasoning? Yeah, so... When we find us, so in, in this swine data set, the strongest association we found was explaining less than 1% of the body weight. So the, the strongest gene that we found affecting heat stress was explaining less than 1% of the body weight of the animals under heat stress. So maybe we have the best animal in our population having the worst combination of genes for that, for that specific marker that we found. And the worst animal might have the best genotype for that specific marker. So if we focus on a single gene or, or a few genes, we eventually are going to make, are going to take very bad decisions. So we usually think as the best animal, not the best gene. So each animal will have a, com a random combination of the genes of their parents. And, and those combinations are going to bring what they're actually looking for. So we're mostly looking for the better animals, not for, we, we don't, don't care too much about identifying the function of the genes, at least not at this moment of the research. What, uh, any guesses on what you think you're going to find? Or, I mean, you have no idea? Or so you know, has this work been done before for in similar situations or other animals and they've discovered, you know, kind of a, a common cause? Yeah, so... so... Sometimes, and, and that's the other thing, that sometimes we identify a list of genes and we cannot understand much based on their function. 
Sometimes we're very lucky and we find a gene with a very clear function on the animal, but sometimes it's a very specific cellular process that was identified in mice, for example, and it's very hard to extend that to heat stress in, in, in livestock. So that's why my research, we're not focusing too much on the function of the genes, but on telling which animal is going to perform better. And of course, we do that based on, on genetics, but we don't, we don't care too much about the function of the specific markers. We always look I would at think that the, uh, the pathway to this would be through epigenetics. I mean, again, you see that you know, heat causes them to produce less meat or uh, you know, less milk. So that definitely sounds like an epigenetic change. So if you look at that and then you look at the underlying genes affected by the epigenetic change, I think that would quickly point to what you want to find, I would guess. I don't know. Yeah, that, that would be if we didn't have that many genes affecting. So some traits are affected by less genes than others. And those traits that we're working with, they, they're affected by a huge number of genes. So it's almost impossible to actually go like and, and do gene by gene and, and look at their action and see what's going on. It's, it's easier for us to use the, 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 the genetic information and the genomic information to identify which animal will be better without focusing too much on the function. But we always look at the function and sometimes we find things that are, are nicer, sometimes we don't. We are now looking at the genes associated with heat stress in, in pigs and we didn't find anything that was like really important or that we could find a very good explanation of, of their function. So, so you're saying it could be so complicated with so many genes involved that it's better to just look at overall phenotype because otherwise you'll get lost in the weeds of too much detail. Yeah, so we can act, we actually look at the at the DNA, but we just don't look at the function. So that, that's what we call complex traits. So we have huge amount of genes with very small effect each. So we can actually use the DNA markers to tell which animal is going to perform better, but we cannot go and, and, and identify the effect of each one of those genes and, and have a very clear answer. So we can still identify based on, on the genomic information which animal is going to perform better. We can't tell much about the, the, the molecular processes underlying this animal being better than the other. I mean, so what do you think the solution is going to look like then if you can only tell maybe more surface level things then how do you say, okay, this is what we need to, you know, we need to use CRISPR-Cas9 or we need to do a certain breeding program that favors these kinds of animals. Like how would you translate this then into something uh, useful? So, so I'm an animal breeder. So I would have to say that breeding is the, is the best way. And, it, and that's the whole process. We have to identify which animals should we breed. And once we, we, we start, we, we establish a goal of breeding animals for heat tolerance, for example, and you identify animals with better genetics for heat tolerance, little by little we'll change that population to, to, to look more what we want. So we did that for milk production. So cows today produce three, four times more milk than they did 50 years ago. Uh, chickens were selected that way. And the whole, the whole problem here is to identify which animals are the better animals. And also having a strategy, as you mentioned in the beginning, that we have to focus on several traits. So 
we do not want to compromise milk production. We want to keep producing a lot of milk, but still select animals for better heat tolerance as well. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Breno, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? That's a great question. I my my webpage is still not on, but we are working on a webpage to 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 put all of our results, uh, uh, and that's going to be under the Yukon Animal Science webpage. But I think if you are really interested, you can just Google my name, and you can see the papers that I've been publishing. I'm not too active in social media, so I think that will be the best way. And hopefully, that website will be up soon, and we'll have all of our presentations, all of our papers, and best ways to to, to, to check what my, my research group is doing. Okay, very good. Well, Breno, thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.